0: Do you read Stephen King? Good news, there's a club for you. The Losers Club. And guess what? You don't have to die at the hands of a shape-shifting clown to join. No, all you have to do is tune in every Friday as us losers journey through the never-ending wastelands of King's Dominion. Each week, we'll either spend hours reading between the pages of one of his books or chew on his latest tweets and Hollywood headlines. What's more, we're always having guests over. Thomas Jane, Mick Garris, Jerry O'Connell, Mary Lambert, Will Wheaton, and the list goes on. So what are you waiting for? Join us as we read on through long days and pleasant nights. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to The Opus, a co-production between Consequence of Sound and Sony that re-examines an iconic album and explores how its legend has evolved and how its legacy continues to shape our world. This season, we're journeying into the Jimi Hendrix Experience's electric ladyland. I'm your host, Ernest Wilkins. In our previous episode, artist Mikel DeVille, writer Mike Vanderbilt, COS's own Michael Rothman, and I discussed the larger cultural impact of Hendrix's music and film, and how through pop culture, his music is now interwoven into American culture. To wrap up our season, allow me to channel the spirit of Jimmy and bring together an all-star jam band for our final episode.
1: This is Hanif Agareki. I'm an author, poet, and cultural critic from Columbus, Ohio. My new book is Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest, which comes out February 1st.
2: Hey, this is Dave Mustaine from Megadeth. I am a lead guitar player and singer. We just celebrated our 35th anniversary, and right now we are supporting our new collection of songs Warheads on Foreheads.
0: We put together a lineup worthy of the monumental task in front of us. You might be asking, what is that task? Well, we're going to attempt to capture what Hendrix's ensuing legacy has meant the world over. You know, simple stuff. People talking, but they just don't know what's in my heart and why I love you so. I love you, baby, like a mine of love gold. am all sugar, let the good time
2: roll. Hey.
0: How did you first get into Hendrix in the first place?
2: Well, see, that's the thing. There were not a lot of great guitar players back when I first started playing. I was thirteen when I first picked up guitar. So it was nineteen seventy-four. And back in the seventies, the guys that were really the shredders back then. The very first guitar solo I ever played was something by Chuck Berry. And then my sister listened to Motown so much, I started listening to a lot of the uh, Motown wrecking crew that they had there. And then I listened to the Isley brothers. And I thought, good God, who are these guys? And then I found out that Jimmy played with them. And so I played with a guy named Dave Harmon, who was the drummer in the band Panic I was in before I joined Metallica. And there was another guy named Rick Solis, who was the guy that was there who stopped me from going any farther after I punched Hatfield in the face and flipped Ron McGovney because of them kicking my dog because Rick was a guitar player in the band, but he was also a martial artist. And so he was there to help stop that. And in that band with Rick and with Dave Harmon, we had played fire. So that was my first experience.
1: Hendrix, for me, remains someone whose mythology outweighs the massive career art that his music had for better or worse, often worse, I think. And I mean outside of the realm of music, right? I think if you talk to musicians or if you talk to people who love guitar, if you talk to people who know their shit, Hendrix's production hasn't really been outpaced by him setting a guitar on fire or the stories or what have you or the posters in dorm rooms. But I do think that there's a whole world outside of his musical influence where he's largely mythology, you know, in the same way of Bob Marley or or Sid Vicious or artists like that.
0: You hear about Hendrix, to your point, you know, in a sense of this is a rock god. What is a grave disservice sometimes is people really underestimate the relationship that he had with the blues.
1: With Hendrix particularly, he spoke fondly about his influences and they were all rooted in blues, electric blues, like Elmore James and Muddy Waters and even rockabilly, like Eddie Cochran. You know, I think there was something happening around Hendrix where he wanted to capture the Darkness that rested in blues and kind of the wash of sounds that could rest in blues music, but take it to a somehow more fearful notch. And some of that was just volume. Hendrix, especially with the experience of the trio, doesn't really get enough credit for standing on top of the walls of sound that were being built and just being loud. Hendrix did a good job of taking some of the low down, more treacherous elements of blues, both sonically and lyrically, and then cranking them up another notch
2: he's got a very interesting chord that people call the Hendrix chord at the uh, seventh and the suspended ninth and how that rubs like that. It's, you know, it's interesting stuff. I remember showing Carrie King a lot of stuff like that. And but he went, cool. That's all he said. <laughs> and then he called me an asshole and then he left. <laughs>
0: did you get involved with the Experience Hendrix tour?
2: Ernest, I have to tell you, I was shocked that I had this opportunity because just like doing the classical performance with the symphony, it's getting out of my wheelhouse. When these guys asked me to do this, I myself was very flattered because to me, Jimmy is the uh, status which I aspired to be my whole life. I wanted to be a guitar legend and granted that I'm considered a legend right now, but I still think Jimmy's so much more grand than I am, and I love his legend. I love how people revere him, and this is one of the, if not the most flattering things outside of Megadeth I've ever been able to do.
0: Experience Hendrix. Music's greats perform the music of Jimi Hendrix together live. The legendary Billy Cox, Joe Satriani, Dave Mustaine from Megadeth, Johnny Lang, Dweezil Zappa, Eric Johnson, Doug Penna, Chris layton from Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble, Mato nanchi Kenny Aronoff, The Sly Brothers, Henry Brown, Kevin McCormick, David Hidalgo and Cesar Rosas from Los Lobos, Taj Mahal, Ernie Isley, Anna Popovich. How do you think Hendrix's legacy evolves from tours like this, where so many guitar gods are just paying homage to this music?
2: I think when you look at the people who are playing here, paying respect to Jimmy, it can't help but pique your curiosity. It certainly piques my curiosity. I was a little bit apprehensive to take this gig because knowing how extremely talented Joe Satriani is, and I've been a fan of Eric Johnson's for years, ever since the Coast of Dover song came out. So you know, I was a little bit nervous, but then I thought, God, I'm going to be in the presence of these guys walking the earth and the spirit of Jimi Hendrix. How can I lose?
0: Legends looked at Hendrix like a legend, you know, he performed over in England and you have Eric Clapton and Steve Winwood in the audience, you know, just like catching the rapture. It kind of lends to the level of talent that's coming out here on the Experience Hendrix tour. I mean, what is it about all of these legendary guitarists, including yourself, that are drawn to Hendrix's guitar style?
2: I think a lot of it had to do with the combination of everything. You know, Jimmy was really shy. He dressed very provocative. He was very sexual with his playing. He had enormous hands, so he would put his thumb over the top of the neck and use that as a walking bass line. If you could do such a thing while holding a cord with the rest of his hand. So that made him really unique. The tone that he used, playing a right-handed guitar, upside down, left-handed. I mean, come on, Ernest. If you went to go see some guy who did all those things, it's yeah. like a magic man. Yeah. You know, When you see these guys, you know, when they're shy, when they get up on the mic, you're like, God, you're, but you're bigger than life. How can you be so meek? You know? and, and the thing is, meekness doesn't mean that you're little. I had this problem speaking from the stage during a song because my adrenaline gets going so fast. Sometimes I just can't talk. It's weird. I can sing, but I can't really talk. He was one of those guys that, unlike myself, who can't help but get in trouble, he was one of those guys that people just loved. He was so shy.
0: We had to open it with a theme that goes uh, starting off celebrating the call of the Black Panther, which would sound like a to get that sound together and then we we'll go to uh are you experience beginning thank you very much for coming in the first place
2: and in the second place as well i had a friend of mine who was a billionaire and a guitar collector and he had one of jimmy's flying oh, wow. oh so i played that one and then i went to the hard rack cafe in london and they have a guitar vault downstairs and Jimmy's only other flying V is there. So I've played both of his flying Vs. That's just insane. As, uh, yeah, it's really cool. There's strings <laughs> are all gunky and shit, and it's got his DNA on it. And not a lot of people know it, but he stripped the finish off of it and painted it himself. That's why it's such a weird psychedelic kind of thing, because, you know, he was tripping a lot, and... He- I can't tell you how many stories I heard about, oh, he would put blotter in his headband, and it's like, who the hell does that?
0: <laughs> a very special person, that's for sure.
2: He was a giant to me with all of that stuff, because he never knew what was the truth, but sure made good scuttlebutt.
0: I have a hummingbird and I hum so loud You think you are losing your mind
2: One thing that I like about Jimmy is that when it comes to solo time, he's not doing these pretty solos that are all planned out and anybody that's listening to this podcast right now, if they're in a band and they're in a four piece or a three piece, they can tell you the difference between when you're a guitar player in a three piece band when you're done playing rhythm and you go to solo, the bottom drops out. so what Jimmy would do is he incorporated ways to play by himself, so he doesn't have to face the limitations of playing with another player. With Megadeth, when we have two guitar players playing together, if we're both playing rhythm and somebody has this license artistically to do a chord because he just feels like it today. The other guitar player, there's not going to be any unison going on. And because you know Jimmy was interacting with the audience so much, talking, dancing, the uh, simulated machine gun effects with his body when he would put the guitar into his crotch and shake. I don't, Some people would say that was sexual. I think it was looking like he had a machine gun myself. I think that's what he called it. And then the fire, lighting his guitar on fire and all that kind of stuff. You know, that's stuff where if you're playing with another guitar player, it doesn't work when you're playing by yourself, you can do whatever you want. And I think that's what he did when it was time to do a solo. If he wanted to solo, he'd start the solo. If he didn't, he didn't. I've seen videos of him where he's talking to the audience and Mitch isn't even on the drum set yet. And Jimmy starts playing. And to me, that is cool because he's there playing to the audience. He starts playing and he's got a band that backs him up. And when it's time to go, they go, that's called jamming.
1: And that's, the most exciting part when someone will not only jump at a chance to play with you, but also bring their friends along to watch you work. And I think the fascination with Hendrix was that for so many people, he made the impossible look easy. Granted, I wasn't there, so I don't know, but you get the vibe that people weren't necessarily watching him to learn as much as they were watching him to take in the full experience, for lack of a better word, because of what he was doing with the instrument and how the instrument was kind of just an extension of him looked so simple, like anyone could do it. And yet... Here we are.
0: does Hendrix represent to culture even American history I think it's a situation where you know it begins and ends with rock god full stop
1: for a lot of folks he's kind of like a black artist who was of an era where I mean music has always been racialized but where black artists were even more racialized than they are now but Hendrix seemed to fold very comfortably into certain spaces that other black artists might not have been able to And I think that plays in his legacy as well, where I think his legacy now is that of an artist who, for some, certainly not for Black people, but for some, is raceless. That's entirely unfortunate to me, but I think that that has also played into America's ability to stomach and worship his presence.
0: He's an icon in spite of where he came from.
1: Right, where he came from and the era he came up in. I mean, Jimi Hendrix was Black in the 60s, and granted, he wasn't beloved everywhere. and He certainly had to reckon with his race while he traveled, while he made music, while he lived. But I think after he died, that is one of the last things that ever gets talked about. And I think there's almost nothing more American than that.
0: Is it in some way a bad thing that Hendrix has become kind of a deity out here? Because you then lose the things that made him so extraordinary because all you focus on is the legend, not actually what the person was doing
1: in some ways, when you live, your legacy is out of your hands, right? As you live and breathe and create, the minute your creation leaves your control, it's entirely out of your hands. But I think particularly after you die, if you die young, especially after having this run of consumption and performance, there's nothing for fans to do but to build a monument out of what could have been. Mm -hmm. And that is entirely out of your control. You do become an idea or a concept or a series of concepts. And so his legacy has kind of been flattened to a few moments, really, or a few of his career's brightest moments, which isn't abnormal. Cobain has also been flattened. Joplin has also been flattened. It goes back to this thing of how do you deal with a legacy of someone who had a lot of promise but didn't live to fulfill it all? His body of work is just not necessarily as vast. And so because it's not as vast, it is not as varied as it could have been. It is obviously very varied and very diverse, but given another decade or another even five years, because I think what he showed on his album was that he was eternally curious and eternally interested in discovering new sounds and new ways around sound. But because, you know, we lost him at such a young age, the palette isn't as diverse as it could have been. And so I think as time goes on, that is something that might hamper his legacy.
2: I wish there would have been more records. And I think if you add all the live performances, there's a lot of stuff out there. But official releases, yeah, not enough for me. I would have loved to have had more songs come out. And back in that period, the songs were shorter and the payoff was really quick. It was first chorus, first chorus, solo, chorus out. Like with the Beatles, the Beatles did the same thing. What they had seven years, four, five, six records or something. I think it's about the same kind of thing short-time, massive accomplishments.
0: There might be some argument. I think we've seen so many icons and legends who have kind of, some would say, ruined their legacy by dropping more stuff. Do you think the less is more thing is a factor in Hendrix's legacy? I mean, you have less room for error. You know that the output is untouched and will never be top. Do you think that that less is more ethos adds to his legend? Do you think it's a case of this could have been bigger than it probably was?
1: I think it adds to his legend. But I think it, it hurts is such a foolish word here because we're talking about Jimmy Hendrix, right? So I don't want to say it hurts like, oh, Jimi Hendrix really hurt his legacy. But I think it adds to legend, but does not necessarily serve his musical legacy. It does in some ways because the unknown feeds the most spectacular, unfulfilled visions, right? When there's the unknown, we can project any glorious dream onto that unknown. But... I also think that because he was so eager and curious and shifting sounds or shifting mode, there's kind of no telling where he could have gone and how that distance, him pushing himself to a further distance, could have broadened the sonic entry points for so many different people. In some ways, it might have been better for Hendrix if he would have just lived and made pretty average record for a while, with a good one peppered in here or there, because to some, he died a deity. And... There is no good way to put a lens on that, especially the further you get away from that person's life.
0: We're living in like the biopic era of music history. You get the three biggest hits, some songs, and you hope that the person got the gist.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The hard thing with fully contextualizing an artist's legacy is that so much of it exists in the music, but with Hendrix There was so much outside of the music that it seems like the music itself is the last thing that people get to. But Electric Ladyland was something that was a pace setter for everything that came after it. You know, it was like dense, but really beautiful. And it's kind of loose flowing structure, particularly on side three, that whole side two. It really did a lot showing the shape of where psychedelic music could go, like how far it could be pushed in the intermingling of the blues still in it. And it was such a crowded, claustrophobic album, sonically, that Hendrix still managed to stand out on, even if he didn't sing a word. But I do think it's hard for people to get to the music itself because the legacy or the aesthetics of Hendrix are so hard to wade through, and there's so much there that is fascinating.
0: So that's it. That's our last episode on Electric Ladyland. I really can't thank you enough for joining me this season. What's next for The Opus? Well, you'll just have to stay tuned to find out. In the meantime, follow us on your favorite podcast platform to catch us when we return. Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, Stitcher. You can find us everywhere you get your shows. You can also find The Opus on Facebook at The Opus CPN and yours truly on Twitter at Ernest Wilkins. Look, I'll be the first to admit it. There's always room for improvement. So the team and I that make this show, we want to know what we did well and what we could have done better. So in order to do that, we need your help. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser if you dig what we do. Apple Podcasts is a great way to get the word out. And Podchaser is a platform built for podcast discovery so you can go even deeper, rating and reviewing not just the series on the whole, but individual episodes. Now, we've played a lot of clips of the new 50th anniversary Electric Ladyland box set this season. Hopefully, you're ready to just sit back and soak in the record with a renewed perspective. If so, you can stream the album on Spotify and Apple Music. And that aforementioned box set? It's a completely new remaster from the original analog tapes, in addition to about, I don't know, Three albums worth of unreleased material, from rare demos to alternate versions to an entire live album that sees Hendrix tackle the legendary Hollywood Bowl. Hop on down to your favorite brick-and-mortar shop to pick it up. And, if that's not enough Hendrix for you, head over to Consequence of Sound, where you can find several editorials on the guitar maestro. Like I said earlier, don't you worry. We will be back soon. But, in the meantime, don't be a stranger. By now, I hope you know where to find us. Take care of yourselves, okay? The opus is written by Ernest Wilkins and recorded in Chicago at Consequence of Sound by Michael Rothman. It's edited and produced by Cat Blackard. Our theme music is by Coach Hop. Find more at coachhop.bandcamp.com. And series artwork is by Stephen Fish. Consequence Podcast Network.